get our Bibles out this morning, finish up our conversations, keep the murmuring to a minimum, bring ourselves before the Lord, amen. Mark chapter 4 is where we're going to be looking at this morning, going to start in verse 35 of Mark chapter 4, preaching on the miracles of Jesus, looking at one of my most favorite miracles. I don't even know if that is a correct grammatical sentence, but I love this where Jesus speaks to the wind and the waves and he tells them to hush and they do. Just an amazing display of his power over the natural realm, showing that he's God and that he can speak to the wind and the waves and they'll obey him. Uh, Mark chapter 4 is our text that we're going to look at. This miracle is chronicled in three of the Gospels. It's in Matthew chapter 8, it's in Luke chapter 8, and it's also in Mark chapter 4. Now, Mark chapter 4 gives us the most detail, so we're going to use that as our main text. We're just going to cover a portion of it this morning. Let's thank God for the word, and then I'm going to read verse 35 through 41 of Mark chapter 4. Father, we thank you for the word this morning. I thank you for these beautiful people who come to your house to worship you. And Father, I pray this morning that their hearts and their ears and their minds would be alert, ready to receive what you have from them for the word of God. Father, the word is sharper than any two-edged sword. It cuts right to the heart of every issue. So Holy Spirit, open up our hearts and tuck the gems and the truth of your word deep into our hearts this morning. Cut us to the quick and change us and stretch us and encourage us this morning. Do it all by the power of the word. We ask it in Jesus' name. And the church said, Amen. Amen. Mark 4, starting in verse 35. On that day, when evening came, he said to them, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was. And the other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, now listen to this, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he got up, and he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down, and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? They became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So I love this account of the miracle here in Mark. And one of the parts that's humorous to me is Jesus tells them not to be afraid. And then right away it says they were very much afraid. I love that. Not everybody gets what they asked for, not even Jesus, right? These guys were scared. When he was done doing his thing, they were even more scared. They said, who is this that the wind and the waves obey him? They were genuinely, you know, shocked and speechless that Jesus could speak to a storm and turn the sea into glass with just the words of his mouth. Now, the backdrop of this miracle is Jesus being knee-deep in ministry, and this is common. He was always on the move. He was healing the sick. He was working miracles. He was sharing parables with the multitudes. He was moving from one divine appointment to the next. He was on a mission. For the last three years of his life, he would minister. He would make the kingdom of heaven come to earth. So this was business as usual for Jesus. And along the way, as he's doing the will of the Father, these divine appointments happen, and there are miracles that take place. 
This time he's not healing a body. Many times we think miracles are just healing sick bodies, and those are beautiful miracles. And in the bulk of the miracles chronicled in the New Testament, the bulk of them are healing bodies. But this time he shows his dominion over nature. He shows his dominion over natural law. Jesus shows himself to be God because only God can speak to the natural law. Only God can stop gravity, can stop the sun standing still in the sky. Only God can calm the wind and the waves and the sea, amen? So he's revealing himself to his disciples who he is. He's doing his thing, business as usual. In verse 35, I want you to notice Jesus initiates the crossing of the Sea of Galilee. This was his idea. And I want you to understand it. It says, on that day when evening came, what he, Jesus said, let us go over to the other side. You know, when we initiate things or we make decisions by ourselves or we just decide what we're going to do and then we get in trouble, we second guess ourselves, don't we? Oh, man, I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have went with this person. I shouldn't have hitched myself to that. And then all of a sudden we get knee-deep in trouble, and we know it's a failure in our leadership or our discernment. This situation wasn't a failure of leadership. Jesus didn't, you know, miss the fact that there was going to be a storm. It wasn't that he didn't have discernment. Jesus, didn't you know that the boat was almost going to sink? Absolutely he knew. He initiated this for the, for the benefit of, of his disciples. Now, what was he doing here? He was stretching their faith. He was putting them in an uncomfortable situation so that they would have to grow spiritually. Does anybody relate to that? Most of the growth we do in the Lord doesn't come from us being comfortable. It comes from us being uncomfortable, amen, when we're in a situation where we're overwhelmed. Now, none of us like to be overwhelmed. We don't wake up in the morning, hallelujah, Lord, overwhelm me today. You know, we might say, overwhelm me with your blessing, overwhelm me with the joy of the Lord, overwhelm me with promotion and all all the good stuff. We want to be overwhelmed with that. But that often doesn't produce growth in us. He initiated this. He said, let's go over to the other side. It wasn't a failure in his leadership or of a lack of his discernment. It was a test. And I want you to realize a lot of things we are going through in life are a test. They're not an accident. They're not unfortunate circumstances. They're not just, you know, the wicked giving us a hard time. God uses all those things like pawns to put us in positions where we are tested so that our faith can be proven and galvanized and strengthened and we can be more like Jesus. Come on, someone say something this morning. Now, nobody likes to be tested. I understand that. I remember being in school and it was test day. You know, your mouth is dry, you're nervous. The teacher is passing out that document that can bring destruction to a young person's life. The test is part of developing our faith. In verse 36, we see that they listen to Jesus. He tells them, let's go over to the other side. And they load up. It says, leaving the crowd. So they're going from the multitudes. He's taking his disciples. They took him along with them in the boat. And there were other boats with him. So they listen to Jesus. They load up the boat. There's a little fleet of boats with them. Now we're going to talk about that a little bit. But this is a pretty normal situation. He's crossing the Sea of Galilee, what? You know, to to do ministry in another place, to go to his next divine appointment. So considering the tempo of Jesus' ministry, he's always on the move. He's always doing miracles. 
All of this is normal. And I, I want you to understand something. Out of the normal situation here, verse 37 happens. And then there arose a fierce gale of wind and waves breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. So what happens here? Out of the mundane, out of just the ordinary, the normal, there comes a storm that puts them in a life or death situation. And you know what? That's the way storms hit us all the time, too. You know, in hindsight, we say, well, we should have saw the storm coming or we should have knew that there was a storm or we should have known by the fact that it was just a little too quiet that something was going to happen. Have you ever felt like that? Man, everything's going good and you start to get suspicious. It's like when you have children, if everything's quiet in the house, you better, you better find them immediately. They're breaking something. They're stealing something. Something's going to burn any minute. You know, and here's this storm out of nowhere, out of the normal, out of the mundane. And the next thing you know, they're in a life and death struggle. And that's the way storms hit us in life. They seem to come out of nowhere. They threaten our peace and our joy and our faith. And at times they even threaten our lives. No one wakes up in the morning thinking, you know, today's going to be the day I fight for my life. Today's going to be the day I'm put in peril. You know, over the weekend, a lot of you know, there was a student that was stabbed and killed at Arlington High School across the street at a football game. And there was just massive fights and things going on there. Just, you know, nobody wakes up and, and, and expects to face a storm like that. We were here, our men's prayer, we were praying... Pastor Mike heard from the Lord that we should march around the town. So us guys were here, and we, we prayed, and we took the flag out that said, appeal to heaven. We marched around LaGrange. We prayed over Arlington High School. We prayed for revival. We prayed that God would come. We appealed to heaven. Guys, if you weren't there, I don't know what you're doing on Saturday morning, but you know there's 15 of us that come regularly. We need the rest of the men to come out and pray because... I don't, know, I don't know what you possibly could be doing on Saturday morning missing out on that. But what a powerful time we had. Just tearing down strongholds and calling out to God. Because there's some things that are going on in our county, in our state, in our nation, in the nations that only God can fix. Only God can fix these things. And it's up to the men of God, it's up to the people of God to cry out and appeal to heaven. Because sometimes these storms just hit out of nowhere. Just think about what parents are going through over there just right now. Their lives forever changed. And I want to say something about storms. Storms will always come. That will never change. Yeah, they come suddenly. They seem to come out of nowhere. They shake us to the core. They test our faith. They threaten us in ways that steal our peace. But the fact is, storms will always come. You say, Pastor, can't you get to a level of spirituality where you don't have to deal with storms anymore? No. Can't you pray some magical prayer, some prayer that really, you know, just keeps a bubble around you, that makes you storm-proof? Wouldn't you love if there was a prayer like that? The storm-proof prayer. Just pray this three times a day, and no storms will touch your life. Sounds like some bad commercial on Christian TV. Unfortunately, there's no way to storm-proof our lives. No matter how tight and right we're living, no matter how close we are to Jesus, look at this. These guys were with Jesus, and the storm still hit them. They could touch Jesus. They could, they could shake him. They're going to wake him in just a little bit. But realize, he was right there with them, and still the storms touched their lives. 
So storms will always come. That'll never change. What can change and what must change is how we respond to the storms when they come. That has to change in us. You know, I understand when, you know, you're a young Christian. You know, when you first come to Christ, you really are in a bubble. It's kind of like this little bubble for a little while where everything is just great. Anybody remember being saved? Most of you have been saved too long. Getting crusty and musty now. But when you're newly saved, right? It's like a new relationship. It's like, you know, it's like you're it's exciting and everybody's wonderful. And you just think the pastor's so funny and church is great and you like every song. Boy, I wish that lasted. But then eventually, you know, it's like it becomes routine and we get into patterns and stuff, and we're oh, not this song again, or no, here he goes again. Now he's yelling, it's early. And, you know, when you're first saved, you're in that little bubble, but then the Lord removes that, and the gloves come off, and the enemy will attack you. And you say, why, Lord? I want to stay in the bubble. No, you never reach maturity in the bubble, amen? So the enemy has to attack into our faith. And you look at these young Christians, and you see, oh, they're in their first storm. Isn't that cute? It's your first time? Yeah, I see. You're coming unglued. It's going to be okay. But as mature saints, as seasoned saints, we've got to grow up a little bit, amen? If it's not your first storm, come on, this is not your first rodeo. You've been through this before. You've been attacked. You've been challenged. The enemy has pushed back on you because you took a couple steps forward in the Lord, and now everything around you, all hell is breaking loose. Come on, I wish somebody here would just say amen, Pastor. I know what you're talking about. And then, you know, it's not your first storm anymore, so we have to grow up and we have to be mature. We can't come unglued every time the devil says, boo, ah. I like to get to the place where the devil says boo, and I'm like, you again, huh? Well, I, I've been finding out, hey, my weeks, it, it's, it's incredible. It seems like every week at the beginning, and, I, and we're going into Monday here, so here we go. There, there's all these storms. There's all these trials. There's all these situations going on. My phone's ringing off the hook. Who's sick? Who died? Who's in trouble? And I get, whoa, I'm overwhelmed. I got 30 hours of study to do. I got a bunch of counseling appointments. I got all kinds of administrative things to do. I, I'm, I'm a husband. I'm a father. And Monday's like, ah! But I've been learning by the end of the week, God takes care of everything. Week after week, time after time. You know, sermon after sermon, service after service. Funerals and weddings and burials, oh my. But God is faithful. And as a seasoned saint, we learn to get a little bit battle-hardened, and we don't get intimidated by the enemy, and we don't come unglued and get all dramatic. Oh, save, your, save the drama for your mama. Come on. I sneer at stuff now. Things that used to undo me in my 20s, I laugh at now. Amen? And you're looking at me like, we're still scared? God wants us to grow a little bit, to trust him, to have faith. The storms are always going to come. How we react to the storm is what needs to change, amen? God is looking for people who trust in him. We sang a lot of great lyrics this morning on those songs, but we need to live those things, amen? <laughs> we need to believe those things. Now, in verse 37, the second half, the wind and the waves are pounding on the ship, and it's already taking in water. If you've ever been on a stormy sea, if you've ever been out to sea in the ocean, 
when there's a storm and there's a hurricane. I've heard stories about, you know, guys in the Navy telling me stories about, you know, you're out there, you can't see any land. I mean, the waves are, and it's just, it'll humble you right away. You know, the ocean is something I find that is humbling. You ever just float around in the ocean and feel like you're just a piece of bait? You know, you're out there, you're bobbing around, the lifeguard looks small, and then you start to hear the Jaws music. Dun, 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 dun. The ocean will humble you. The, the wind and the waves will humble you. The, the water coming into the, the boat will humble you. This was a serious situation. You don't need to be an admiral in the Navy to realize that boat's going to sink, and you can't swim in what's going on right now. It was life or death. It was a serious situation. And the disciples were stressed out. And what stressed them out even further in this moment was that they're trying to bail out the boat. They're trying to do whatever they can do with the sails. You know, they're doing that boating stuff that most of us don't get, but they got because they were fishermen. They were experienced sailors, and they're stressed out, and it's not going well. And what freaks them out even more is that Jesus is asleep in the boat. Now, I don't know about you, but, I, you know, when you're a disciple, you rely on Jesus, amen? You're not thinking, Jesus, go ahead, sleep, get your beauty rest. You know, had a stressful day. We'll take care of this. No, they're in a full-blown panic, and Jesus is asleep in the boat. This stresses them out even more. The boat's taking on water, and the boat's going to sink in the natural. Verse 38 tells us Jesus was asleep in the stern on a pillow. Isn't he cute? Look at that. And you know, you know he's down there, and he's asleep, but he knows exactly what's going on. I could see him, you know, going like this with one eye open. Listen. He's listening to them. He's listening to them panic. Come on, anybody have an imagination? I mean, he knows what's going on, and he hears them. I mean, I know he was laughing at Peter and the things they're saying, and, and, he, and he's like, in his spirit, he's like, you know, there's going to be a lesson here, but I'm going to stay on my pillow until they come get me. And he's, he's laying there, and, he, and they're stressed out. And two things I want you to see in hindsight that I want you to know. Number one, if Jesus is on your boat, you're going to be all right. Amen. If Jesus is on your boat, now I know the disciples were stressed out. I know they were scared. I know there was wind and waves and we didn't see it. So I'm not being judgmental, but they're coming unglued. But the thing is, Jesus is on your boat. If you got Jesus with you, what do you have to be scared of? If God is for us, who can be against? We don't have to fear the arrow that flies by day or the pestilence. I said, we don't have to fear the pestilence. I said, we don't have to fear the pestilence. The date of my birth and the date of my death are etched in stone in the Father's heart. When it's time for me to go, I'll go. When it's time for you to go, you'll go. No one can snatch you out of the Father's hand. You can be afraid if you want to. But you don't have to be. My beginning and end is set in stone in the Father's heart. He's scheduled the time that he'll call me home. And for you too, the storms will come and the winds will blow. But if Jesus is in your boat, you're safe. You say, well, pastor, how do I know if Jesus is in my boat? Well, are you born again? Have you accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Are you filled with the Holy Spirit of God? Do you know that if you take your last breath on earth, you'll take your first breath in heaven? Are you saved? Are you a Christian? If you are, Jesus is in your boat. He's in your boat. He's with you. 
Christ in me, the hope of glory. He's not just standing next to me. He's in me. He's in you. He's in my boat. He's in your boat. It's going to be okay. The second thing in hindsight the disciples should have saw was this. If Jesus isn't panicking, we shouldn't be panicking. You know, God's not up in heaven calling a board meeting, and he's not, let's get assemble the Trinity, and, you know, it's all coming unglued down there. We got to figure out what to do. We need a stopgap plan here. It's a mess. We lost control. No. That's hell. That's what's going on in hell. What's going on in heaven is everything's not falling apart. Everything's falling into place. God is in control. God is in control. And if Jesus isn't panicking, we shouldn't panic. There's a, a story where there's a man who was the gas man in the neighborhood. He checked all the meters for the gas in every building. And, and one day he got behind the house to check a meter, and he saw a Doberman pincher that was not chained up. And the Doberman started to growl at him, and that gas man turned around, and he ran full blast for his truck. Now, his truck was a couple hundred yards up the street, and as he ran, the UPS man saw him, and he began to run. Then the FedEx man saw him, and he began to run. And then the postman, and all four of them got back to the truck, and they stopped, and they were all panting. And the gas man said, why are you chasing me? And the UPS man said, when the gas man runs, we run. <laughs> boom. For those of you who are slow, boom. You know, panic breeds panic. Panic breeds panic. Get around some panicked people and you'll panic. Get around some scared people and you'll get scared. Get around some faithless, fearful people and that's what you'll get on you. Listen, if you're surrounded by people like that, in Jesus' name, get away from them. Get around some people who have faith. Get around some people who believe in the word of God. Get around some people who are not just playing church, but are being the church. It's not time for the church to be weak. It's not for the time for the church to be playing games. It's not time to be half in the world and half out of the world. It's not time to be saying hallelujah on Sunday and Monday, living like the devil, drinking, looking at pornography, running around with wicked people. God's going to root that out of the church. There'll be a great shaking in the last days. We're in the last days. Listen, get right with God because he's coming back for a church without spot or wrinkle. Now, maybe you won't hear that in many churches, and we want the happy, clappy, goose bump, hot tub Christianity. And that's why we got a lot of empty seats, but that's okay. I would rather have a handful of people that really want to be part of the kingdom than a whole bunch of dead wood that doesn't want to do anything for Jesus. Amen? So God bless you. You're not dead wood today. That's a compliment. You put up with me every week. That shows some tenacity. God bless you. But here we are. Jesus is in their boat. It's going to be okay. You know, Jesus is not panicking. He's got the whole world in his hands. It's not just a song. It's reality. Not, things aren't falling apart. They're falling into place. So they wake Jesus up. And I love this. They always want to inform Jesus about everything he doesn't know when they wake him up. Jesus, you missed a lot of stuff while you were sleeping. You know, and we always want to do that. We always want to fill Jesus in on what's going on. Jesus, they're doing this to me. They're persecuting, they're forcing me. They're doing this. They're threatening me. They're, you know, I got a whole bunch of stuff going on. Jesus, did you know about this? Jesus go, oh, thanks for cluing me into that. 
because he's got the hairs of our head numbered, and he knows the beginning and end of our days. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. But they want to tell him about what's going on, and, you know, they, they wake him up. And in crisis and calamity and danger, everyone wants to ask Jesus this question, and this is the question that they ask. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Now, all of us have been in situations where we felt like, I'm dying here. Have you ever looked up at heaven after a succession of things just going wrong, 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 and say, Lord, I'm dying here. Do you even care what's going on in my life? Now, a lot of us would think you won't look at me because you think it's unspiritual to admit that. And, and, you know, the truth is all of us have felt that at times. That, God, do you see what's going on? Do you see what's going on in my life? Do you see what's going on at my job? Do you see what's going on in America, in the nations? God, do you even care? This is so relevant to where we are right now. They asked that question, Lord, do you even care that we're perishing? Ship's going down. We're going to drown. You're asleep here. Do you even care? This question is on the hearts and the lips of those who believe and those who don't believe. Do you realize right now at this time, such a unique time, that the world and even the church have the same question to God? And it's this question that the disciples ask. Do do you even care? that we're perishing? God, do you see what's going on? Come on, are you feeling this? You see, the world asks that same question too. Is there a God? Does he care? In fact, unbelievers fall into three philosophical camps. The first camp is this. We have the atheists. The atheists have concluded that there is no God, that God's not there. He's a construct of humanity. Men made up God and that he's just a a, a fable or a fabrication for weak people who need a crutch because they can't handle life. The atheist says there is no God, so how could he care? And if you notice in our society, if you just go on social media a little bit, if you just listen to how people respond to others who post faith and things about God, that there is a lot of atheism even in our nation and that it's on the rise. People have been unchurched. They are ungodly for generations. They've been told to live in secular humanism and to deny God and to depend on themselves and government for everything that God should provide. And we've reaped that in our nation. And now we have those who scoff God and say, he's not there. And the atheist says, well, God couldn't possibly care because God's not real. Then we have the agnostics. The agnostics, they believe, well, God might be there, but we can't know for sure. And he doesn't involve himself in the affairs of men. So even if he did care, it doesn't matter because he won't get involved. The agnostic says, well, we can't deny the existence of God and we can't prove the existence of God. But one thing's for sure, God doesn't get involved with our problems. So even if he's there, it doesn't matter if he cares. Brad Pitt was quoted, one of Hollywood's foremost actors. He said, I'm probably 20% atheist and 80% agnostic. I don't think anyone really knows. You'll either find out or not when you get there. Until then, there's no point in thinking about it. And there could be a no more dangerous doctrine because once you get there, it's too late to figure it out. And the devil knows, yeah, don't think about it. Don't worry about it. Nobody could know for sure. Just be a good person. Just do good things, and it'll all pan out in the end. The wide path. 
that leads to destruction. Now, you might say, well, that's Hollywood for you, Pastor. But you know what? We need to love Hollywood. We need to love people like this that are confused and don't know. Because if they wait until they get there, it's going to be too late. The atheist says God's not there, so it doesn't matter if he cares. The agnostic says he might care. We can't know for sure. Let's just figure it out in the end. And then we have the last philosophical camp here in the world. It's this, the God's not fair crowd. We have a whole group of people that, well, they'll make the mental assent that there is a God. But you know what? Their entire focus is in on the fact that if God is there, then why do all these things happen? You know, and I know you've talked to them, and I know you've tried to witness to them, and I've, I've had college professors stand up in front of the class and say, if God's there, why do, why do children starve in Africa? If God's there, and it's, just, it's all this questioning God, why, 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 why? Why, if God's there, why do babies get cancer? Why do young people get murdered? Why do 16-year-olds get stabbed at football games? Why? Why do children starve, get sexually abused, get trafficked and prostituted and murdered? Why? Why do good people suffer injustice at the hands of the powerful? Why? And all they want to do is ask, why, why, why? And their contention is, well, if God's there, he's not fair. And I've heard people say, well, I'd never serve a God like that. The answer to the whys and the what ifs, the world doesn't want to hear. The answer is quite simply, we're in a sinful world, and sin has touched every part of our world. You say, and they say, well, you know, if God's in control, why are there hurricanes and tornadoes and volcanoes, and why did this happen, and why does that happen? And the answers to the whys and the what ifs, sometimes we can't understand or accept. But those of us who know God know he's a good God, and he's a merciful God, amen? So the world wants to know the answer to the question. Do you care that we're dying here? The atheist, the agnostic, the God's not fair crowd. Yet it's not just the world. The believers ask the same exact question, even in this instance. It's the disciples asking Jesus, don't you care that we're dying here? And believers, many times in our lives, we have to look up at heaven and ask a question similar to this. The believer who pray, prayed so hard from a place of desperation for a loved one that was sick or dying, and despite all the earnest prayers, the person dies, and they conclude, well, God's there, but he just didn't care. The believer who suffers abuse and injustice at the hands of others, maybe as a child, physical, sexual, mental abuse, and they know in their heart, God, you could have stopped it, but you didn't, so maybe you're there, but I'm not sure you care. The believer who gives up everything to follow Christ, who walks away from all their worldly possessions, who, maybe in the Middle East or maybe in India or in some of these places where they're booted out of their families to follow Christ and then they're jailed and beaten or martyred. You know, they may conclude, God, are you there? Do you even care? There's many times in life where we don't understand as believers and we look up at heaven and we ask the same questions that the disciples asked. God, don't you care that I'm dying? Don't you care? Don't you see what they're doing to me? Don't you see the abuse, the injustice? Come on, this is real stuff. There are three things that prove that Jesus cares. And I want to close this message with this. I'm going to have my helpers bring out the first proof that Jesus cares. And he does care for us, and we need to be reminded sometimes that he cares. 
So we're going to have a little intermission music here. No, I'm just kidding. Don't trip. Bring it right to the edge of the steps, guys. Thank you. The first proof that Jesus cares is his cradle. Jesus' cradle was a manger. A manger is an animal trough. They took the Lord of glory who was born through the Virgin Mary, and they placed him not in a golden, gilded, beautiful cradle. They placed him in a trough that was used to feed animals. And this manger, this cradle, is the proof that Jesus cares. You see, if he would have never come to earth, if he would have never left his father's side, if he would have never inconvenienced himself by being stripped of his glory, by leaving his heavenly home and taking on the flesh to be born as a helpless baby, this proved to us that he cares. He never would have done any of that if he didn't care. The manger proves that Jesus cares for us that he would come in such a humble way. He would be brought in such a humble place. A king laid in an animal trough where animals ate their feed. So humble. If he didn't care, he would have stayed in heaven. If he didn't care, he would have said to the father, I'm not doing it, come up with another plan. But the very fact that he came to earth in such a humble way proves to us that he cares. The very fact that he was in their boat that day proves that he cares. But guys, I want you to bring out the second proof that Jesus cares. The second proof that Jesus cares is the cross, another crude implement. away. This proves that Jesus cares. Church, I said this proves that Jesus cares. Those nail-scarred hands that were on this cross, those feet that were pegged to the bottom in excruciating pain, that baby who was born in a manger grew up. He proved who he was with every miracle that he did. Still his own received him not, and the world rejected him. They pierced his hands and feet. They pierced his side. The blood on the cross, the splinters in his back, the cries to his Father in heaven. Every day the cross screams to this world that God cares. God cares about us. The cross is not just a a piece of jewelry that we wear on our neck. It was the vehicle that God used to break the power of sin over our lives. The cradle and the cross prove that he cared. The cross screams to this broken, hurting world louder than anything I know. It screams, I love you, signed God. Thomas Aquinas said, to those who have faith, no explanation is necessary. To those who have no faith, no explanation is possible. Believe in the cross. Believe in the one who hung on the cross. Believe in the one who broke the power of sin over the cross and every day realize he cares. But he didn't answer my prayer. He cares. Things didn't work out the way I hoped. He cares. And he didn't show up for me when I cried out at that moment. He cares. 
He's the author and the finisher of your faith. We don't say to the potter, shape me this way. We're the clay. We're lumps. Turn to somebody and say, hey, lump. Go ahead. Don't tell the potter what to do. The cross and the cradle, they scream that God cares. And the last proof that God cares is this. The cradle, the cross, and the fact that he's coming again proves that he cares. He's coming again. He's coming again. Jesus is on his way back. I believe he's got the angels assembled. He's got heaven fired up. I believe we're in the last of the last days. I believe he could crack that eastern sky at any time. I believe he could come to take his bride at any moment. Come on, anyone. Jesus promised us he would come again. The very fact that he would come back to this mess called earth for us, the church, proves that he cares. If Jesus didn't care, why would he bother to come back? Think about it. Think about how they treated him when he came the first time. He came as the lamb, but he's coming back as the lion. Amen? Every eye is going to see him. Those of us who studied eschatology, and if you sat in this church for any period of time and heard me preach through the book of Revelation, the coming of Jesus Christ will happen in two stages. First, he will come back secretly, and no one will see him, and he'll catch up his bride, the church, and take us away. The second time he comes, he will come, and every eye will see him. And in an instant, Israel will see him, and all of Israel will be saved. And then he'll come to set up his millennial kingdom on earth. Come on. Are there any Bible students here? You know what's, co- you know what's coming? Jesus is coming. He's coming back for a church without spot or wrinkle. He's coming again. You know, the moment Jesus left earth, God made sure we knew he'd be back. Acts 111, the, the disciples were there and Jesus was giving them their last standing orders. And then the Bible says he just, he just you know, kind of floated up away into heaven. You know, he's talking to them, and all of a sudden, it's just, And then they're watching him, and he disappears in the clouds, and angels show up in Acts 1, verse 11. Men of Galilee, the angels say, why do you stand gazing up into the heaven? Man, angels don't ask very smart questions. Are you kidding me? Jesus just floated away. Did you see that? That's why we're looking up. Whoa. But they say, why? Why are you standing there looking in the sky? And listen to what they say here. This same Jesus who was taken up from you into the heavens will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. The angel's saying the way he left is the way he'll come. The way he left is the way he'll come. First time he'll come into the heavens and snatch away his church. The second time he will come and he'll establish his millennial kingdom on earth. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 18 tells the church exactly how it's going to happen. Listen to this. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. Oh, I'm waiting to hear that shout, amen. With the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. He's coming back. He's coming back for the church. He's coming back for a people, a church without spot or wrinkle. So get right. 
get ready, stay close to him. The cradle and the cross and his coming all prove to us that he cares. Do all of our prayers get answered the way we like immediately? No. But let's not be immature. Let's be, let's be faithful to believe the Lord even when it doesn't make sense to us. Let's be mature enough to know that our God is faithful, that the God who came in the manger and broke the power of sin on the cross and promised to return for his church will not let us down. So the answer to the question, Lord, don't you care that we're dying here? The answer is he cares. Let's bow our heads today. Father, I just thank you today for a reminder from a miracle that Jesus did as he walked the earth, that you care for us. Father, at times where we're confused and we're afraid and our ships are taken on water and we're scared, help us to know that you're faithful, God, that not even death can separate us from your love and your promises. The worst thing that could happen to us on any given day is that we die and get to be with you forever. So, Father, we can't lose, and so I pray that you'd remove fear from all of our hearts, that perfect love would cast out all fear. When we know how much you love us and when we love you back, it casts out fear. So drive fear out of your people and let the church be the church in this hour. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Give him praise this morning.